Good morning. It's too good to miss. Christ has risen. Yes, yes. It's fantastic. Well, let's pray that these few minutes will, will be made useful by God. Father in heaven, we hear lots of words and we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak from your written word. Uh, you'd guide me in what to say and what not to say. Uh, help us to throw out things that are false and to embrace things that are real and lasting. So, Father, please help us to see Jesus more clearly now for his glory. Amen. One of the things I like about Christianity is where it was born. Uh, I don't know where you were born. I like to say I was born in King's Cross because that sounds classier than, Darling, than Darlinghurst. But it was, uh, I don't know where you were, but, but you know where Christianity was born? It was born in a cemetery. Odd place to be born, but that is very clearly where the whole thing gets started. Now, we've been talking a little bit about the coronation of uh, Charlie III and... Um, there's a lot of stuff that's going to go on, although it, it does vary a little bit. But the, the heart of it is a point when he is anointed with oil. He's then crowned. He's then enthroned. And then there's a part where people show their homage or their loyalty to him. And the anointing part, as you might know, is not the British have nicked that straight out of the Bible. And the Archbishop of Canterbury will come with a very beautiful little jar with a tiny little spoon connected to the lid and they'll anoint him with oil because that's that's what happened in the old testament if someone became king and that the one who was anointed in the sort of hebrewish sort of word was the messiah messiah just means the anointed one and if you were the anointed one you were the king and that comes across through the greek and english to the word christ so when we use the word christ apart from as a swear word we're not using it as Jesus' surname, it's a title. Jesus Christ. Or as the Bible often says, some of the apostles when they write their letters, they'll more often say Christ Jesus, which is like us saying King Charles. And so Jesus is the Christ and he is the anointed one. But of course, as you know, that's very disputed. Ten times in the chapter before the ones we're looking at now in, in chapter 20, the question of Jesus being the king or having a kingdom is brought up. It's, uh, it was one of the things that I, I learnt with more clarity on Friday than I'd ever seen. How is Jesus the king or not is the central issue. And that's why the Romans put him to death because he claimed to be king. Now what Jews would call the king that God had sent was the Messiah. And they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And he would overthrow evil. Now they defined evil almost entirely in political terms. But we'll see that Jesus thinks that evil is a much more substantial thing than just bad government. But what we see at the beginning of the passage that was read for us is that the king is dead. The king is well and truly dead. We're told that a number of times. He's dead and buried. And that always has a certain finality to it. When a person is dead, that's one thing. When they're dead and buried, they're absolutely gone. And in numerous times we're told that he's, he's dead and he's been placed in a tomb. And at this point, his claim to be king is dead. Because the one thing that you couldn't have happened to you if you were the Messiah, if you really were the king, was have the bad guys kill you. 
And this is actually, this history is full of various Jewish men claiming to be the Messiah, a certain number of people following them, a bit of trouble for the Roman government, and then being wiped out. And as soon as the, the Messiah is killed, it's over. Because if you're killed, you ain't the Messiah in, in the way that people thought. And so when Jesus died, that should have been the end of it. Some of you will know this. Uh, it's a comic that does the rounds at this time of the year by Lunig. I'll read the, the writing at the bottom because it's a bit small. One of the soldiers saying, look at that, brilliant. You kill the leader and you nip the whole movement in the bud. Now, those of you interested in reality, it is odd that at the point when every other claimant to be the Messiah dies, the movement dies. In fact, we dug up in the last 70 or so years uh, evidence of some of these other messiahs who had much bigger followings than Jesus ever did. Some of them were even making coins with their faces on it. We'd never heard of them. Because as soon as the Romans kill you, all of your followers know you ain't the messiah because you're supposed to be the all-powerful king. And you've been eaten up by really the much more powerful king who, as you know, will eat us all up. Um, a phrase that I, it's interesting the number of phrases in our language that come directly from the Bible. The, one of the obvious ones that you hear people quote all the time, and I've had friendly arguments with people who I say, that's Jesus. They say, no, it's not. Yes, it is. The truth will set you free. That's from Jesus in John 8. But there's another one I'd heard echoed around a bit, which was called this, the King of Terrors. The King of Terrors. It's a great phrase. And, and what is it referring to? It, it was a thing that two or three generations before us, and then for many generations before that, people would refer to death as the king of terrors. And um, one of the proofs that we are so frightened of death is the fact that we say we're not frightened of death and we just sort of have a beer and crack a joke and we think by that way we sort of subdued it. But um, undoubtedly, death is something that makes us Frightened. In fact, I tell you, funny. There's a statistic you'll hear people say sometimes. You know, people in Australia—they're more frightened of public speaking than they are of dying. What a lot of rubbish! Right? If I give you a chance between getting up here and public speaking, you might want to do it, or death. It's part of the denial that we have—that we're so unaware of our fear of this King of Terrors that we pretend we're not frightened of it. And um, ooh, do you remember where he's from? It, yeah, the, the, 1987, the ads, to try and frighten us to take AIDS seriously. And the way they tried to frighten us was by telling you it could kill you. And it was actually a very successful set of advertisements. So they had this guy, the Grim Reaper. And that actually picture comes from, it's, a, it's an ancient picture in uh, the UK and places like that of the King of Terrors. Uh, this is the ad, you'd come down the whole nice a lot of people would come down looking just like us, like 10 pins. And this was the face that I found particularly haunting. She's just an actress. She's okay. All these people waiting to be bowled out by death. It was, a, it was a scary... In fact, it's world famous. But it was using our unspoken but deep fear of death to get us to take AIDS seriously. And it wasn't just a thing for, for gay men, etc. It was for all of us. Very successful and a very loving act. But they used death to keep us safe from death, to frighten us. Now, this guy's, I've got a copy of this guy's book here, The, the Denial of Death by a, an atheistic sort of philosopher. It's a brilliant book. And he argues that, well, this is one of the quotes from the 
He says things like this, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. Now, we don't talk about it. In fact, his book, The Denial of Death, is in it, he argues a number of things, one of which, which is that our culture, sort of Western-originated European culture, is the most death-denying culture ever in human history. We've got a thousand ways to avoid thinking about it. A lot of the health industry, a lot of obsession with youth as beauty is to do with our fear of death. And this guy's no religious dude, but he just goes through looking at the denial of death is so deep in our culture. But you know the way it works psychologically. If you deny something that frightens you, it's still there. It just, just works in odd ways. So the king of terrors comes to all of us. I don't want to labour this point very much. I do have a thought that I have thoughts that hit my hair. They sort of arrive on the screen of my mind. I don't think my way to them, they just arrive. And one of the ones that I'm shocked, it happens to me at every single funeral, and now I've given up hoping it won't happen, is at some point, normally when I'm out the back and the coffin's being brought towards the hearse, or if we're at the Gold, Gold Creek Chapel, I had this thought, and it goes like this. It always comes to this. Always comes to this. Doesn't matter how young you are, how healthy you are, how happy your life's been, what a huge asset you've been to the culture, or an absolute menace. It always comes to this. Death wins. Death will crush you. Death will have the last word on everyone who you love, on every relationship. See, in our, I'm immediately feeling guilty. I shouldn't talk like this. I'm, we're supposed to behave like twits who never think about things that are ultimate. We talk about all sorts of possibilities, retirement, superannuation, holidays overseas, that are all possibilities. And yet if you talk about the one certainty, what's wrong with you? Now, what's wrong with, and, and Becker's point is that we live in the most death-denying culture. It always wins. At various times, you feel death surrounding you and you fight it off with medicines and other things, and you hold it. but in the end, it always wins. It's the king of terrors. Beat Muhammad, beat Genghis Khan, beat Marilyn Monroe, even beat Johnny Sattler. In the end, death always wins. It frightens us. It makes life a fundamentally tragic journey. That we're fundamentally fighting a losing battle to stay alive and healthy, to keep our relationships together. But in the end, it always comes to this. And sadly, it looks as if it always comes to this for Jesus. He's just another little human being, says some nice things, does some interesting things. But in the end, the king of terrors seems to beat him. So you hear the early Christians uh, on the day or so after the death of Jesus saying things like, we had hoped, they had this hope that this was going to be the one who would defeat evil. And yet, in the end, he didn't. He lost, like all of us lose. The wisest man in all the earth at, at the time, King Solomon, says this. This is such an offensive thing for Australians. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting or partying. For death is the destiny of every person and the living should take it to heart. That's from King Solomon, who's no fool. It's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of partying. We go, oh, like heck it is. You need to get some counselling, buddy. Right? But because um, in the end, that, that is our destiny. Adults, like, I mean, not by their age, but by their maturity, will live and face that and talk it and explore it. Anyhow, the king gets beaten by the king of terrors. All hope is gone. Then the story moves on, as you heard, to the fact that the king is missing. This is very odd, and, and you really need to, we need to take this on board. 
that when Mary, who loved Jesus, as, as others did, says in chapter 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And you've got then various people going to and from the tomb, establishing the fact that the king is missing, at least his body is missing. It's hard to know whether you called him that. I remember when my father died and I went up to where mum and dad lived and dad was sort of in the lounge room on this chair where he died. And it was kind of hard to know how to talk about him. Was that dad? Well, I remember looking at him, yes, but no. Quite obviously it was, but it wasn't. So here the king is missing, Jesus is missing. And it's, none of the disciples think he could have done it himself. None of them go, hey, maybe he's done what he said he'd do. Come up to Jerusalem, be handed over to the Romans and put to death and the third day rising. And none of them. And do notice when you're reading these four Gospels where all of the disciples, men and women, sadly at this point, none of them get it. None of them are anticipating coming back. These are the leaders of the church. These are the pillars of the organisation. Peter, John, James, all these people. They're, but they're all hopeless. Well, no, they're not really, are they? They're just, we all know that when you're dead, you're dead. Every, see, some people sit here and they think, without really any study of the culture, they just assume that everyone back there were a bunch of dills. That they didn't know that when you're dead, you're dead, right? They didn't have the magic medicine we had. Back comes Kerry Packer for a few more months, right? Uh, so that we, we've got all this magic medicine that when you're dead, you, so long as we can get you in the your first four or five minutes, you may well come back for another few minutes. But they knew when you're dead, you're dead. And I remember that didn't strike me until I was at a funeral of a friend of mine at the end of year 12. He, he drowned. And two things I remember really, really struck me. I'll tell you what, don't get to church late, particularly for a funeral, because I had to sit right up the front near the coffin, which is not where I wanted to be, because that's what happens when you get to church late. But... The two things that struck me really clearly was, you're a long time dead. I just knew that we were never going to see Jackie again. He'd gone. I'd known him since I was a kid. We'd learned to swim together. And also I learned he had no plan on being dead when he was in the bus that afternoon going home from school. In fact, he was the guy who was planning a muck-up day and the school the end of year dance. He was, a, he was a big wheel in our world. But you go. And then what? Well, all these guys, they knew that too. Mary knew it, Peter knew it, Thomas really knew it. We're going to get to Thomas in a few minutes. There's a sense in which the account that you heard about Thomas is probably the climax of the book, of John's book. It's a very carefully written book. But Thomas's experience, they all knew that dead people don't come back. The statistics, as you know about that, are pretty perfect. One out of one of us die, and that's the end of the story. And the... When historians look at the question of what happened in that first Easter, one of the things that they say is a rock-hard solid fact that no historian who deals with this at all doubts is that on the Sunday morning, the tomb of Jesus was empty. Now, that doesn't prove that he rose from the dead. But it does raise a question, what on earth is going on? And, and what the early Christians thought, Mary was sure that they, the authorities who'd murdered him, just it was just the use of the law to, to murder him, were desecrating his body in some way. They were sure that the authorities had stolen it. We know from Matthew's gospel that the authorities were sure that the disciples had stolen him. Everyone knew the body was missing. The question was what had happened, and th stealing it was the most likely thing people thought. 
One of the odd things that all four of the Gospels remind us of is this, that the grave clothes of Jesus were left there. Now, this is just a weird detail. that They don't make anything of it. They never say, ah, this proves. They just recount the fact that they, the grave clothes were there. Because I tell you what, friends, when, if ever you think about stealing a dead body, even if it's a fairly fresh dead body, you know, and he's sort of three days dead, although having been tortured to death, he would have been very messy. When the Romans whipped you, it didn't just stay on the nice portion of your back. It was, it was, it was like uh, in Mel Gibson's film. But they notice the fact that the grave clothes are there. Because what you don't do if you're nicking your body is you do not unwrap it. Right? If you're a parent and you find a sandwich that was made seven months ago in the bottom of your kid's bag and it's, it's wrapped in plastic, you do not unwrap it before you remove it. Right? Right? You do not unwrap a bloody dead body before you nick it. But they notice that. But the simple fact is that needs to be faced is that the body of Jesus is missing and, and to work out what, what do we think happened. What, it's a weird thing that happens. But the first thing is the king is dead. The king of terrors beats him as it will beat you. The body is missing. Probably won't happen to your body. But the third thing is this, that the king is alive. At least that's the, that's the claim of the early Christians. Um, they could have lied uh, most of us lie in order to make some advantage don't we not that anyone in this building would ever lie but, um, but if we lie we lie to avoid trouble or to get ourselves an advantage we shouldn't have um, you do not lie yourself into painful martyrdom right? 10 of the 11 eyewitnesses uh, the, the original eyewitnesses were put to death, were executed in various painful ways. Two of them crucified, right? which is a way that the Romans killed you in the most painful way they worked out how. And yet, quite a number of non-Christian historians have noticed this. Not one, there's not a single echo from history, even though a lot of the history is written by people who don't like Christians, that any of the Christians broke and said, it was a lie. We're just, just having a bit of a lark, really. Right? They all stick to it. And their story is, we saw him. The first one to use that line, I've seen the Lord, is of course Mary. And you, we've been through this uh, in past Easter's, and I'm sure you remember it. But um, in both the Roman world and in the Jewish world, if you were making up a story, you didn't want to have your key witnesses being women. I mean, I don't, it's hard to imagine, because Australians are never sexist in that way. But, but we, have, we have writings saying very clearly that women's testimony couldn't be taken seriously because of the temerity and levity of their sex. I don't know what that means, but they were not taken seriously. And yet Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all four accounts all tell us it was women who were first. They don't make a big deal of it. But if you're a historian, you think, why? And Celsus, who was one of the early Roman opponents of Christianity, he explicitly mocks the Christians as a bunch of gossip from, from hysterical women. See, we, we got mocked for that, but that, why did they happen? Because that's what happened. Jesus chose to appear first to Mary. Mary is sent to the apostles with a message, and here's what she says. I have seen the Lord. See, she's not saying anything spiritual. I think there's life after death. I think maybe love triumphs over hatred. Any of this waffle that people go, sometimes it's people in the church. It's just, no, they just say, it's a fact, I've seen him. Which is not, not, if I said to you, you say, oh, I, I saw Andrew Lubbock yesterday. You go, 
good day for you, but so what? (laughs) But if I said to you, I saw Harold Holt the other day, (laughs) or Johnny Sattler, right? I get the feeling some of you don't even know. Go home and read. <laughs> get an education. He's a legend of South Sydney. But, um, but the, or, or just to be cultured, or Beethoven. I saw Beethoven playing the piano the other day. Right? That, that would get your attention. Right? But all they're saying is, I saw someone who you shouldn't see. Right? He's dead and buried. The body's gone missing. But a missing body does not a resurrection make. But what does is that the body is missing and then people, we saw him. We know from Luke that the response of the disciples when Mary came in with the story of having seen him was that the men didn't believe her. It wasn't until he appeared to them that they really believed. But then he appears, Jesus does appear, doesn't he, in, in chapter uh, 20. Jesus turns up, says, peace be with you. Actually, go back. I like 2020. This is, this is a, a little irrelevant bit of fun. Here's 2020 vision for you from John chapter 20, verse 20. Jesus appeared to the disciples. He always starts off with, peace be with you. That would be helpful because in most stories, if a leader gets betrayed and deserted by his friends and somehow or other survives, he's liable to come back and slap them around the ears a bit. Uh, They had all left him, and Peter especially. Peace be with you. After Jesus said this, verse 20, he showed them his hands in his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. It's me. It really is me. It's not my twin. It's me. And the disciples were overjoyed. That's 2020 vision. He showed them his hands in his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. It may just be he dealt with grief and heartbreak differently. Some people like to be with people. Other people like to be on their own. Maybe Thomas was like that. We know from earlier references to him he was no coward. He wasn't there. The other disciples said to him, verse 24, we have seen the Lord. They nicked Mary's sermon and just pluralize it. I've seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. He said to them, how wonderful to hear. Let's pray. He said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side where the spear went, I will not believe. So for those of us who are respecters of science and the scientific method, he's your first empiricist. He's saying, I ain't believing something just because 10 reliable friends tell me. Right? I want to see it for myself and I want to touch it for myself. I want to see and touch and make sure it really is him. I've been having some friendly um, discussions with uh, various people on whether or not the title that we give to uh, Thomas, and there's a little joke about it where Thomas is complaining that people keep calling him Doubting Thomas. They don't speak of denying Peter or Nudie Run Mark, who was arrested and ran nude through Jerusalem. And he's saying, come on, why do I keep getting nailed with that stuff? But actually, I want to suggest to you, Thomas is not doubting. I don't know, apparently it was in the 14th century was the first record we've got of Thomas called Doubting Thomas. He was not a doubter. Doubt is faith in two minds. Doubt is what John the Baptist did with Jesus, where he'd said, that's the one, and then later on says, I'm not sure if you are. You're not doing what I thought you were doing. That's what, doubt is where you go, I believe, but hmm, maybe not. So when I was an atheist, I used to doubt. I know there's no God, but then a little bit, oh, maybe there is. 
you know, and, and then I became a Christian. I know there's a God. Well, maybe there isn't. You know, it's sort of doubts. We all do that with things that any, almost anything that's big and important and invisible. We think, yes, but me. that's not what Thomas is not doubting Thomas. I won't believe. He's absolutely definite. It's much stronger than doubt. He's saying, bull. You know, pull the other leg, it plays waltzing Matilda. But that's what, he's, that's what he's saying. So Thomas is very clear. So what is it that convinces Thomas? Well, the same thing has convinced Mary. And the same thing has convinced the others. He needed the same level of proof as they did. Now, they were eyewitnesses. It's very important to have eyewitnesses. It's not important to be one. So you say, but I, I want to see Jesus. Sorry, you got born at the wrong time and on the wrong side of the earth. Real, the real world works like that. There's all sorts of historical events I'd be interested to have seen. Born at the wrong time, born at the wrong place, wasn't paying attention. But you need to have good eyewitnesses. So I went to, court, I went to this courtroom in Balmain for a couple of days because I was the only witness of, a, of an event. And the guilty man's uh, lawyer kept delaying it, hoping I'd get worn out because basically I was the only eyewitness. And the more they delayed it, the more pig-headed I got. I'm going to come every day for the next 10 years if you're going to play this game. Anyhow, in the end, he pleaded guilty when he saw it because I, there was an eyewitness. And you've got eyewitnesses to Jesus. And these are eyewitnesses who are honest men and honest women, over 500. I wouldn't mind going to court with over 500 witnesses or something. Well over 500 eyewitnesses. The king is alive. And this is what the early Christians kept on saying. When they started to preach to um, um, in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus had died and been buried, here's what they say. There's this pattern that they say again and again. This is Peter speaking in the first Christian sermon. He's speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited to you by God, by miracles, etc. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. You put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead. And a couple of verses later, God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses. See, the community then, the Israel nation, the Romans, best religion in the world, best sort of legal system in the world, and the ordinary mass of the people all combined to say to Jesus, no, you claim to be the Messiah. You claim to be the Son of God. No. You say, come to me if you want life abundant. And we say, no, I can find life elsewhere even as it wrecks me. Right? So we, hum, humankind has said a no on Good Friday. And on, on Easter Sunday, God says, yes, I will raise him from the dead and he will appear before many, many witnesses. This is what he's done. Thomas believes because he sees him. We, well, how do we get to believe? Because we don't get to see him. Would have been fun. Well, listen to what Jesus says because he talks about us. Reach out your hand and put it into my side, Jesus said. Stop unbelief, but believe. It's unfortunate because actually my translation, to be honest, it says stop doubting, but believe. It's not the word for doubt. It's the same word as faith, but with a, with a not in front of it, the letter A. You know how you get a theist to someone who believes in God, an atheist, you put the A in front and it means not. So this is simply the word for faith with an A in front of it. He says stop not believing and start believing. Believe what? Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. The highest statement given to Jesus since chapter 1. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Here's us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
So there are some people who don't get to see Jesus, as Thomas and the other 500 or so did. But Jesus bless a blessing upon them, upon us. Well, how on earth can we come to believe then, realistically, intelligently? Verse 30. John the writer says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So he did more with them since the resurrection. Verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe what? That you may believe what? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We read the honest accounts of eyewitnesses. It's very easy to dismiss the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus if you've never looked at it. Evidence that you won't look at for fear or laziness or both will be unconvincing. But history in this room is full of people who when they finally looked at the evidence found it very persuasive. This is, a, this is the sort of, um, I'm not gonna read you these books. Um, this is one of, this is a biggish book. Um, and there's another one by N.T. Wright that I couldn't find, who just, which just goes through the evidence for the resurrection. So any idea that there's no evidence for the resurrection and no serious scholarship is just ignorance. There's a massive amount of good evidence, and there's a whole area of scholarly discipline looking at the question of what happened that kick-started Christianity so unusually. Um, this book here is just a, a book that looks at evidence generally. The evidence, did Jesus exist? Has the New Testament come down to us accurately? There's a mountain of evidence problem is getting people to look at it. We make comments as if there isn't. So here's a, here's a, a briefer one. If you're not a regular attender at St. Matt's, uh, we've got a few of these left over called More Than a Carpenter. I had a friend who was reading it and he, he said, oh, I threw that, that book you gave me, I, th I threw it across the bedroom last night. I said, why? He didn't like his style. He said, no, it was, it was convincing me, right? <laughs> and he just got angry. Um, but it's, look, there are better books, but this is not a bad book that'll just introduce you to some of the evidence that convinced the earliest Christians and continues to convince people in all different languages and types of people that Jesus Christ is alive. God has reversed the no. Your instinctive position is likely to be no to Jesus, particularly no to him as the Christ, the King. Yes, he's a nice chap. Yes, wouldn't the world be better if we sort of listened to him a little bit, but no to him being the King. That's our sinfulness at work. But what Jesus does is he destroys, he overpowers the king of terror. That's why he's called the king of kings. There ain't no one more powerful. When you think of powerful people, you might think of people with large armies and lots of submarines. Jesus Christ is by far the most powerful person who ever walked on the earth. He's the only one who's been swallowed up by death. And then as the Bible says, it was impossible for death to hold him. He doesn't use his power to brutalise. He uses his power to free us from the most deadly of our dangers, the king of terrors, by his dying for us. So the king is alive. Now, lastly, the king of kings will live forever. I, I've often read things from ancient empires. You know, they, uh, you hear records and the people come up to King Nebuchadnezzar and they say this to him, O oh, king, live forever. If I'm King Nebuchadnezzar, I say, you get out of here and scrub pots. You're an idiot. I am not going to live forever. So if that's where you start, I'm not interested in whatever else you say. But the, there is this sort of longing, perhaps, for a king who will last forever. But with Jesus, that's exactly what you've got. Because he will not be defeated by death. 
He hasn't had a close escape. He's been eaten by it and then kicked it to death from the inside. And the question for us is, will we believe that he's the king? More importantly, not just do we believe he is the king, because the evidence is very good. But to be able to say, as Thomas does when he sees him, my Lord and my God. That little, is it a personal pronoun? That little personal pronoun, my, makes all the difference. It's the difference between heaven and hell. You can believe that Jesus is the Christ. You can believe that he's a terribly nice chap. You can believe that he died for sins, etc. But until you come to the point of saying, he is my king, my Christ, my Lord, my God, until you trade in the rubbish God that you've got, which is, I should say, until you trade in the rather nice but limited God you've got, which is yourself, (laughs) right? Uh, and you can win for a few minutes without that God. Um, and that's the problem, isn't it? See, if you're not willing to say to Jesus, you are my Christ, you are my God, you are my saviour, you died for my sins, I need the forgiveness that can only come from you. What you are saying is, I prefer, I've got a better king than you. In which case you'll be eaten up by the king of terrors and all sorts of unfortunate things before that. John writes so that we can know the truth about Jesus. So that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, have life. Life in his name. Many of you will know that the Greek language that this is written in, it's got two words for life. One is bios, from which we get our word biology. Just ordinary, everyday life, exciting as it is. And the other is zoe, from which we get our name Zoe for a name. But zoe zoe is, is life in that sense of that which really makes bios worth doing, that which thrills us and satisfies the heart. Jesus, once he shakes his head, he goes, he goes through all the evidence he's given people in John 5 and says, but you will not come to me that you will have life. He said, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, but you will not come to me that you will have life. And he's calling us to acknowledge that he is the king. He's the risen one. Christianity is born in the cemetery. That's where it starts. He overpowers death. There's a fellow called um, R.W. Dale, who was a minister of a church. I think I've got a picture of him for all you hipsters. There he is. Cool looking dude from the 19th century. Anyhow, he, he led what some people said was the finest. Oh, that's, that's his grave, so in case you wonder, he's not alive still. R.W. Dale led what was said to be the finest, some, some said this, the finest Christian church in the world. I don't know how you worked that out. But it's an odd thing to say. Uh, Cars Lane Congregational Church. And one morning he was working on a sermon on the resurrection. And he began to think about the risen Jesus. And he said it just broke through to him this sudden awareness. And it was this. Christ is alive. He said it to himself again. Christ is alive. He's as alive as I am. He paused and he said, Jesus is alive. He's alive. He got up and he was walking around his study saying, Christ He's not just the greatest human that ever lived. He's not just the only one who defeated death, but he is alive. He is risen and remains risen and alive. And then he said it was for him like a new discovery. He said, though I'd I'd believed it for many years, at that moment it looked as if before it I hadn't. The sort of a fresh awareness that Christ is alive as he is. You might like to do yourself a favour and go for a walk or as you're driving or sitting in a traffic jam to think he is alive 
until it sinks through our thick heads and hearts. In the end, he made the, he said, I'm going to make sure that the people of my church know this because maybe they're like me. They believe it, tick, yes, genuinely, but they don't get it. So they, they began this thing that continued for decades at Cars Lane Church that every Sunday they'd have at least one resurrection hymn. And I remember when I came to Canberra and Joe here would be, uh, I'd go down to um, Goodwin Villages sometime and, and Joe would be leading a service. And, you know, you're supposed to be, begin officially with... Um, the peace of the Lord be with, always with you, and they, sent, they answer back. But Joe didn't. He'd always start off, Christ is risen. And the congregation went, he's, and I just thought, Joe's obviously, he's, he's caught on a fact that's very important that we get this into our heads and our hearts. So the king is alive, and um, you can decide to keep another king, which is a vote of no confidence in him. Humans tend to say no. God says yes and raises him from the dead. And you need to decide if you're going to be like Thomas and say, my Lord and my God. And trust him as the king who's loved you and died for you. This is a king who gives joy. Otherwise, you're left at the mercy of the king of terrors and the second death as well. And that's why, it's, that's why Christians sing, because there's just, it is almost too good to be true. But the great part of the goodness of it is that when you look at the evidence, it's rock solid and uh, very persuasive. He is the king of kings, and he defeats the king of terrors. And therefore, we, we're going to laugh ourselves all the way home to heaven. Uh, before we sing, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing gift of your son. And Lord Jesus, help us to be wise, to not fight against your rightful position as king of all. Thank you that you alone can defeat the king of terrors and that you can share, you love to share that victory with your people. Thanks for being the king who loves us, serves us, dies for us, and then defeats death. Thank you for your promise that on a day just like today, you will come back. Lord, we gladly pay homage to you, that before you we gladly kneel and, and want to say thank you for your love, your kindness, your mercy and your great power. We pray this in your name. Amen.